0: Good morning to each of you. Please take God's word and turn with me to Romans chapter 16. As we were singing that final song, Behold our God seated on his throne. I couldn't help but think what a fitting conclusion that was to our adult Sunday school class this morning. We went through the book of Revelation. And if we saw anything, I pray we saw that How God does indeed reign and is exalted upon his throne. What an encouraging thought. What a heartwarming thought. What a challenging thought. And uh, a blessed thought. And I pray that as we turn our attention now to God's word. That he would send forth his spirit and speak to us. Instructing us, edifying us, challenging us. And to that end I invite you to follow along. As I begin reading in Romans chapter 16, verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites and by smooth talk and flattery. They deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. For those of us who are parents... Uh, We readily acknowledge that we have a number of responsibilities, and one of our chief responsibilities is to teach our children discernment. It's a great calling. It's a high calling, a tremendous responsibility. We are to teach them to discern between, yes, what is good, what is bad, uh, what is true, what is wrong what is beautiful, what is ugly. Uh, We are to teach them to discern between what is harmful and what is beneficial. And so from a very young age, we instruct them, do we not, that uh, when they approach the road to cross it, they are to look both ways before crossing. Uh, We teach them that sticking Play-Doh in a light socket isn't a very good idea. Uh, We teach them not to put pennies or marbles or anything else at hand in their mouths. And uh, discernment, discernment, discernment. And we strive to impart it. If our young ones, boy, girl, reaches uh, 16 years of age, and they're still unable to discern between what is harmful or beneficial, uh, we acknowledge something is wrong. Uh, We acknowledge that either we've messed up and haven't done a very good job, Or they've got their wires crossed and something isn't quite up to speed. But we most certainly would identify that individual, that young man, that young woman as what? Immature. Immature. An inability. An inability to discern. An inability to discern, yes, between good and bad, evil. Perhaps an inability to discern between truth and error. But what I'm most concerned about is an inability to discern... Between what is beneficial for me and what is downright (laughs) harmful. You know, it works exactly the same way in the church. It is no different in the church. You take a man, you take a woman who is born again. I don't know, 17 years of age, 37 years of age, 57 years of age. An individual born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this individual, praise God, uh, sees his sin like he never saw it before and understands his precarious position before a holy God and acknowledges and recognizes that he has but one hope. It is the cross, the cross of Christ, where the Lord Jesus has borne the penalty due for us, due to us on account of our sin. And that individual places his faith, her faith in the Lord Jesus. And we now identify that person as a Christian, that individual now has a tremendous responsibility and the church has a tremendous responsibility to help that, church, that individual to do what? No matter the age. To discern. To grow up. To actually increase in maturity. Yes, in ability to discern between what is good and bad, right and wrong, truth and error, beautiful and ugly in the sight of God. And to discern between what is beneficial and... And what is harmful. And that is exactly, precisely, what the Apostle Paul is doing in our text, the text before us, the verses before us. He is exhorting, as he wraps up this epistle, as it draws quickly to a close, he is exhorting his fellow believers, this church at Rome, to make sure, above all else, that they develop discernment, that they grow in discernment. And so we're going to consider specifically what Paul has to say to the church at Rome and by consequence, by inference, to us. Again, our text, verses 17 through 20. And what I want you to notice, firstly, there's a twofold appeal. And then I'm going to want you to notice, secondly, there's a twofold reason for the twofold appeal. And then I want us to note, thirdly, that there's a twofold hope to help us put into practice the twofold reason which is given for the twofold appeal. You got that? I think it's in the notes. I sure hope now now I put it in the notes. Three divisions, very simple. A twofold appeal, a twofold reason, and a twofold hope. So we begin with verse 17. A twofold appeal. How does he begin? There you have it. I appeal to you, brothers, literally. I beg you. I plead with you. It is an expression. Of urgent affection, an expression of urgent affection. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I already know who you are. Those of you who have been accompanying this series through Romans for quite some time now, you hear those words, I appeal to you. I appeal to you. There's a familiarity, isn't there? Go right back to chapter 12, right back to chapter 12, verse 1, same phrase, precisely the same words, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, return with me to chapter 15 and look with me at what Paul says in verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers. And now in our text, chapter 16, verse 17, for a third time, I appeal to you, brothers. There's a sermon in itself. Three times in this epistle toward the end, in what we might call the more practical portion of this letter, Paul makes this threefold appeal. In chapter 12, it is an appeal to what? Give your lives, offer your lives as a, your bodies, as a spiritual sacrifice. It is a call to consecration. In chapter 15, verse 30, I appeal to you to strive with me in your prayers. It is a call to prayer. I dare say, it is a call to closer communion with God. And now in our verse, the verse before you, I appeal to you, To what? To be discerning. And so an appeal firstly to consecration, an appeal secondly to prayer, that is communion with God, and an appeal thirdly to discernment. Like I said, that's a sermon in itself. We're not going to stop there. We're not going to limit ourselves to that threefold appeal, but I must say there is something very pastoral here. I hope you're not missing it. Very pastoral. Let me just put it out there for what it's worth. And I think it's worth it or I wouldn't be doing it. Put it out there. That I can trace just about every spiritual problem. You know, I want to say every spiritual problem I can trace. But I need to acknowledge maybe there's something that has escaped my notice. So I'm going to say 99% of spiritual problems I can trace back to a failure to heed one of those three appeals. A call to concentrate, to consecration—that is, to live your life for God. A call to prayer—that is, seek closer communion with God—and a call to discernment. And so, I'm going to speak pastorally to someone, perhaps someone's, a group of people, many people. I don't know, but I'm going to hazard a guess. This applies to someone. There you find yourself. You're sitting here, Grace Community Church, on a Sunday morning. You identify yourself as a Christian, a believer, a follower of the Lord Jesus. But you acknowledge, perhaps you would openly acknowledge it, but you most certainly would secretly acknowledge it, that you are at a point where you can only describe your sojourn as spiritual stagnation. I think I know where I've been, kind of know where I am, but I have no idea where I'm going. And you have just been spinning your wheels for some time. Uh, My youngest, she will remain nameless. She likes to ride her bike with the training wheels, right? And she gets out at the end of the driveway on the road. And where the driveway, the drive meets the road, there's just this little dip. You, You almost can't see it. You almost can't detect it. If she stops with the back wheel over that dip, the training wheels bridge that little dip. And if she stops there and tries to start again, the back tire is maybe a quarter of the inch, an inch off the road and it will spin and it will spin and it will spin and it will spin. She will pedal, pedal frantically. She will look over at me for help and I just kind of look away, figure it out. It's not that difficult. But there she is spinning the wheel, just spinning, spinning, spinning. And her, she'll furrow her brow, she'll grit her teeth and she thinks, well, the harder I try, maybe I'll, something will happen here. You know, I'm asking, I guess that describes someone very well spiritually at this moment. I guarantee it. I'm stepping out on a limb. Uh, If that is you, you can trace it back to one of these three reasons. You can. It is that simple. You can trace it back to a lack of consecration. You are not living for God. You are living for yourself. You can trace it back to a lack of prayer that is close communion with God. You have been very negligent and careless and you are not pursuing communion with God, not walking closely with him. Or you can trace it back to a lack of discernment. You have made silly decisions. You have made foolish choices. And you have failed to discern between what is good and what is bad, what is harmful and what is beneficial. And as a result, you find yourself, well, you find yourself where you are. So pastorally, I want to speak to you. And my word to you is very simple. It's merely this. Remember from where you first fell. That's it. Remember from where you first fell. Remember and recall where it all began. And confess it to the Lord because guess what? No surprise. He knows already but confess it to the Lord and bring it to him, remembering what? That if we confess our, our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I plead with you to take a good look at the Lord Jesus. You go back to the opening verses of Romans 5. Go back to the opening verses of Romans 8. Take a little dip in the gospel narratives this afternoon, but get back and search for the Lord Jesus. You search for him earnestly in his word. I guarantee it, he will reveal himself in his word. And get back to the cross. Get back to the shadow of the cross. And heed these three appeals. I appeal to you a life of consecration lived for only one purpose, the glory of Lord God Almighty. A call to prayer, that is to pursue close communion with God through those means which he has given us. And in our case, a call to biblical discernment between what is really healthy for you and unhealthy. There you have it, a little sermonette in the sermon. It's a twofold appeal. I appeal to you, brothers. You say twofold, uh, yes, because he actually pleads with them to do two things. Note the words, I appeal to you, brothers. Here's the first one, to watch out. You got it? Here's the second one, right at the end of the verse, avoid. So it is a twofold appeal. Firstly, we are to watch, and secondly, we are to avoid. Well, what are we to watch, or rather, who are we to watch? What are we to avoid, or who are we to avoid? He leaves us in no doubt, verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out, here we go, for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine. That you have been taught. You see, there is such a thing as the faith once for all delivered to the saints. There is such a thing as an analogy of the faith, which Paul uses back there in Romans 12. There's There's such a thing as a standard of truth, a phrase he uses back there in Romans 6. There is such a thing as a deposit. There is such a thing as Scripture. There is such a thing as the Word of God. There is such a thing as the Bible. And Paul's point is simply this, look, I want you to watch. Not simply watch, like you're watching the television or a sports game or something. No, it is watch out for. You are to identify these people. You are to note them. You are to observe them. Here's who I have in view. Those who dare to cause divisions and create obstacles. How? By departing or teaching contrary to the doctrine, the word of God, that you have been taught. And here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to respond. Avoid them. Well, that sounds rude. It's not an invitation to be rude. It's not an invitation to be snarky. It's not an invitation to be combative. It is a command to exercise discernment and to acknowledge in Paul's day ever since right up to our day, there are, there have been, there are, and there will be individuals, men and women, claiming the name of Christ but who in essence will depart from the doctrine. They will depart from the standard of teaching. They will depart from the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We are to watch out for them, and we are to avoid them. Now, I know what you're thinking. Maybe you aren't, but you're about to be thinking it. This seems to be a contradiction. Paul seems to contradict himself in the verse... I mean, just listen to it again. Okay, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions. All right, so I'm I'm supposed to identify people who cause divisions. And then what does he say right at the end of the verse? Divide from them. Well, hang on a second. So I'm to watch for those who create divisions and then I am to do what? What? Create a division. Well, in creating that division, don't I become the people I'm actually supposed to be watching for? Well, there I am on a merry-go-round that I'm never gonna get off of. What's his point here? No, he has clearly defined what he means. Those who teach, creating divisions, creating obstacles, contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. And so it is actually that individual who has created the division. All Paul is exhorting this church to do is what? Acknowledge it. Acknowledge it. Ratify it by avoiding such individuals. That's his twofold appeal. He backs it up now with a twofold reason into verse 18, for, or if you like, because. And so immediately you see the connection between the 18th verse and the 17th verse. He's building, he's giving a reason. Here's reason number one. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For, I think this is reason two, for your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So you're following his thought flow. He's given the twofold appeal. I appeal to you to watch. I appeal to you to avoid. Now let me give you a twofold reason why such vigilance is so necessary, why it is absolutely essential that you heed my appeal. Here's reason number one. I'm gonna sum it up in a single word, deception. 18th verse. For such persons, in other words, those I've just described back in verse 17, those who cause divisions and create obstacles, such persons, those people, do not misunderstand this. They do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, literally bellies. They serve their own bellies is a literal translation. And by smooth talk and flattery, The Greek word from which we get our English word, eulogy. Which means what? Blessing. They're flattery. They bless people. Bless you, bless you, bless you, bless you. Eulogy upon eulogy upon eulogy. But by their smooth talk and their flattery, they actually deceive, hence the word I'm using, deception, the hearts of the naive. Now, no one wants to be known as naive, do we? The unsuspecting. That is the individual who is unable to discern. That individual is naive. That individual is prey, easy prey, for the flattery and the smooth talk of these false teachers who don't serve Christ but actually serve their own appetites. In other words, there's something that drives them. And I think it's very important for us to get it. I will acknowledge it's somewhat controversial for me to say it but I think I do so on, on solid biblical grounds and authority because there you have it in the text. You take an individual, and in our day it could be a man or it could be a woman, heading up a church, small church, medium sized church, big church, mega church, who cares, there you have it, man, woman, uh, heading up this church, gathering And yet it is evidently an individual who has uh, departed from the doctrine. Departed from the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The gospel has been watered down and all you hear is smooth talk and flattery with lots of smiles. Bless you, bless you, bless you. Smooth talk and flattery and people love it. How are we supposed to understand, Texas is full of them by the way, right? How are we supposed to understand such an individual? Right? How are we supposed to understand this? How are we supposed to make sense of this? Sadly, in our day, most of us are tempted to think as follows. Well, the individual has made an intellectual error. Who knows? Who am I to judge? What does Paul say? No, 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 no. This is not an intellectual issue. This is not a misjudgment in terms of intellectually speaking or cognitively thinking. Someone who has been unable to understand something in Scripture and so has ended up teaching something false, well, we should just sort of give them some latitude and some space. No, Paul points us in a completely different direction. And what does he say? No, the reason for this... The reason the individual has actually willingly departed from the doctrine and is causing divisions and creating obstacles contrary to the doctrine is because that individual, in reality, does not serve our Lord Christ but is actually serving his own belly. He craves something. She craves something. They're after something. It might be power, it could be influence. It could be control, it could be notoriety, it could be fame, it could be success, it could be wealth, but there is something far more sinister going on according to the Apostle Paul himself. Hence the reason, that's reason number one, to heed his appeal, to watch out for such individuals and to avoid them because this is serious. This is active deception whereby you have an individual man or woman who does not have Christ as Lord and has departed from biblical truth because they are craving something else and the means by which they grab onto or hold onto or achieve, realize their own appetites is through smooth talk and flattery. And they deceive the hearts of the naive. We got a lot of naive people in Texas as well. A lot of naive people. Complete lack of discernment when it comes to biblical truth. I know that sounds harsh of me to say that, doesn't it? No, you're going like this. That's wonderful. That wasn't harsh of me to say that. It's the truth. It is the truth. It is the state and the condition of much of evangelicalism in our state today. A complete and utter lack of discernment when it comes to the word of God, the biblical gospel, and exactly what we're all about here as Christians living in our day. The second reason is this, it builds in verse 19, for your obedience, he says. Your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. It's a great phrase. Back in chapter one, verse eight, he commended them because their faith is known in the whole world. I mean, earlier he has told them in chapter 15, verse 14, hasn't he? I am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. So compliment, yes, upon compliment, the reality of their faith, he is happy for it. Here he says it again, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. You know, that in and of itself, I didn't intend to go down this road, but I think it's worth going going there. That statement in and of itself is very telling. Because even as a pastor, member here at Grace Community Church, I have often thought this way. I've often thought, look, if the Apostle Paul were to walk through our doors, here we are in May, and there he is in the flesh, the Apostle Paul, and spend a month with us, what would he say at the end of it? Here's what I hope he doesn't say. Here's what I hope he doesn't say. Well, that's a church with great music. I hope he's got a little more to say than that. That's a church with a great sense of community. All right. I'm looking for a little more. That's a really busy church. Lots of activity. Yeah. There's a church with a ton of programs and ministries making a difference. No, 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 above all else, here's what I would pray, that the Apostle Paul would echo this statement, your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. Our obedience. That's a healthy church from Paul's estimation vantage point. Your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But here's where I think his thinking is going here. Look, that's the reality, But these these individuals, I've warned you off, right? I've warned you to watch out for them. I've warned you to avoid them. I've given you reason number one. It's because they serve their own appetites. And in so doing, they're seeking to deceive others. And I want you to get this. Your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But if you don't watch and you don't avoid and you succumb to their deception, what will the result be? Your obedience will fail. They will lead you away from the word of God. They will lead you away from what is pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. What you are known for now, you will not be known for then. Oh, I rejoice that it is not so at this moment. I rejoice that your obedience is known to all. But, 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 middle of verse 19. Oh, I want you, back to this idea of discernment. I want you to be wise. As to what is good and innocent, as to what is evil. So, deception and the potential for disobedience, the twofold reason buttressing Paul's twofold command. And if you're like me, you read this and you think, well, that's a little daunting. The condition of the church today is downright depressing. And to the left of me, to the right of me, below me, above me, all around me. Oh, the the teaching going on out there, and the things we hear, and the things we're exposed to, and the ideas that are so prevalent, and the philosophies and worldviews that seem to have a grip on, on, on what professes to be the church in our day. Oh, this is so daunting. Who's up to this? Who's up to being able to exercise this kind of discernment of watching and avoiding? Yes, because we recognize the danger of deception and the danger of disobedience. Paul doesn't want to leave it there, and so he imparts a twofold hope. Here's hope number one, final conquest, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. There is hope. Now, you hear that phrase, and you should hear an echo. It is an echo out of Genesis 3. Subsequent to the fall, Adam and Eve's rebellion against God, God addresses the serpent. He speaks to Satan. And he makes it known, this is the first redemptive promise, this is the first messianic prophecy. I am going, I, God himself speaking, I am going to put enmity, hatred, between you and the woman. Between your seed and her seed. You will bruise his heel. He, it becomes singular all of a sudden, will bruise your head, crush it. Here, I think this is what Paul has in view, that text out of Genesis 3, the God of peace will soon, so the fulfillment of that prophecy, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I want you to notice a couple of things. The first is this. The God of peace will soon crush Satan, crush Satan. Uh, When does this happen? Well, I submit to you, it has happened. It has happened in one degree, one sense at Calvary's cross. We read of that in Colossians 2, that the Lord Jesus at Calvary's cross disarmed all the rulers and authorities and powers. He dealt a death blow to Satan by exercising his authority and his victory over sin and the grave. But I suggest to you there's a second stage. Not only has Christ crushed Satan and did so at the cross, he is currently crushing Satan because he has been exalted to the right hand of God. He now rules and reigns supreme over every authority, every name that is named not only this age and the one to come. And I suggest to you thirdly that there's a third stage that he will, this is the consummation, crush Satan. And that's 1 Corinthians 15. When he comes again, and there's a great and glorious resurrection, renovation of the cosmos, separation between the sheep and the goats, the righteous and the unrighteous, believers and unbelievers, there is eternal condemnation, death for unbelievers, and there is eternal bliss for believers. That will be the final act, the final stage in this crushing of the head of the serpent. So that's the first thing I want you to know. The second thing I want you to get is this, that word soon. You wrote this 2,000 years ago. It seemed to be very soon. What does Peter say in his second epistle? I want you to know, I don't want this to mistake your attention, that with the Lord, uh, a thousand years is as one day. Thank you. And one day is as a thousand years. The Lord is not forgetful concerning his promise. Soon, from the perspective, the vantage point of God, And the third thing I want you to get is this. Yes, he will soon crush Satan. Third thing I want you to get, where? Under your feet. Why? Because as far as God is concerned, we are one with Christ. And even now, we are seated with him in the heavenly places. And a day is coming when we will enter our glorified state We will see him as he is and we will be like him and that final stage in the crushing of Satan, the bruising of his head will be under our feet by virtue of our union and identity with the Lord Jesus Christ. There is hope to do what? There is hope to heed the appeal. Second hope is this. Right at the end of verse 20. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's now. So the first hope is final conquest. The second hope is present support, that the grace of the Lord Jesus is with us. Again, as a Christian, because I am one with Christ by the Holy Spirit, and so my identity, I call myself a Christian, I take the name of Christ because I am one with him in God's estimation. And because I am one with him, everything the Lord Jesus purchased through his life and his death, his burial and his resurrection, every benefit, every gift, every blessing flows to me, is mine by virtue of my oneness with the Lord Jesus. He is an inexhaustible fount of grace. Oh, may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Grace to endure. Grace to sustain, grace to persevere, and grace to exercise discernment in heeding the appeal of the Apostle Paul to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Now here's what I want to do. There's the text. I want to give you five points of application quickly as we conclude this morning. Five very simple, straightforward points of application that I think would be a mistake on my part not to emphasize. Here's point of application number one. As a matter of fact, I'm wording these by way of appeals. And so I'm appropriating that phrase at the start of verse 17, personalizing it. I appeal to you, all of you sitting here. Here's number one. I appeal to you in our day to watch for those who teach an unbiblical view of man. All right, I think these five are so important what I'm gonna give you. I appeal to you, I plead with you, I urge you, I beg you to watch for those who teach an unbiblical view of man. You get the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of man wrong as it is articulated in scripture and you distort, twist, corrupt the gospel invariably. Right? You get it wrong, you get the problem wrong, guess what? You get the remedy wrong, That's why today it's all, bless me, Lord, bless me, Lord. It's all I ever hear. No one weeps, no one pleads, no one even sheds one tear. Keith Green, by the way, in case you were wondering. It's all about me. Blessing, blessing, blessing. Self-realization, self-fulfillment. Here it is, your best life now. Happiness now. Realization now. Creating my self-identity now. Me, me, me. You get the problem wrong. You get the gospel wrong. Here is the problem as articulated by the Apostle Paul. All are under sin, period. What exclamation mark perhaps would be more fitting? All are under sin. That is the problem. The fountain is polluted. And whatever comes from this fountain through me, however good it might look to others, is polluted in the sight of God. Because our hearts are not right in the sight of God. Because from the moment we enter this world, we are riddled with self-love. That is our governing operating principle. And I can live the best life in terms of appearances to others, but understand it is not acceptable in the sight of a perfect God. That is the dilemma. That is the problem. And if your gospel doesn't remedy that problem, guess what? You've departed from the doctrine. It's not the biblical gospel. A.W. Pink hit it head on when he wrote, Every child is born into this world with an entire depravity of nature, which inevitably leads to actual transgression, and with a complete inability of soul to change its nature or do anything pleasing to God. If your starting point when it comes to the Christian faith, the gospel is this, well, I don't really think I'm that bad, you don't get it. You have departed from Scripture. You are light years away from the gospel. If you think for one moment, well, you know, God's keeping score up there, and I know I've done some things that are pretty bad, but I've done a lot of good things, and I'm kind of counting on his grace, yeah, Jesus at the cross, amen, to kind of compensate for those few little bad things I've done. You don't get it, my friend. That is not the biblical gospel, If you came to Jesus because you think he's going to make your life wonderful and solve all your problems and give you material blessings now, bring reconciliation in your relationships and prosper you in the workplace, somehow give you a secure, blessed life, you have departed from the word of God. That is not the biblical gospel. I appeal to you. I plead with you to watch for those who teach an unbiblical view of man. Building on it, I appeal to you, watch for those who teach an unbiblical view of the gospel. Here is the gospel in a nutshell, Romans 3:24. We are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That is the only suitable remedy for the problem, my sin. I know who I am. Oh, I'm so aware of who I am. And I'll tell you, sometimes I'm amazed that you sit there and you listen to me preach. If you knew the half of it, you wouldn't. And if I knew the half of your life, I wouldn't preach to you, right? There you go. (laughs) And I am amazed. I am astounded. Not, you know, not so much because of what's been done externally from, you know, externally measured up with other people. I guess probably people looking on will think, well, there's a pretty good guy. No, but it's because of what lurks in the heart. It's because of what lurks there. It's because of the condition of the heart. It is what bothers me, and it is what troubles me, and I need a Savior. I need a Savior who can deal definitively with my corrupt heart. I need a Savior who, yes, is gonna bear the penalty for my sin. Not just sins I've committed, but my sin, who I am, and my twisted thinking and depraved heart. And there I see him upon Calvary's cross, redemption, redemption, I see him becoming sin for me. I see him bearing the wrath of God for me. And I understand this, that I now bring nothing to the table. It's not God doing his part and me doing my part. There is no part for me to do. God does it all or he does nothing, my friend. It is sovereign grace from beginning to end. But simply by a miracle of sovereign grace, I see the light. And I understand I need a savior. If ever I'm going to stand before a God who is angry with my sin, Yes, I said angry with my sin. Angry with sinners. If ever I'm going to stand before a God who has pledged, who has promised to judge eternal condemnation, anyone who is not absolutely perfect. Well, there you go, my friend. If I'm going to stand before that God, well, then I need to find forgiveness. I need to find forgiveness in someone who has lived the life I couldn't live. Perfection. And I need to find someone who has borne the penalty for my sin so that a just God might justify me, declare me just in his sight. And Buddha won't do it for you. Oh, heaven help us all. He will not do it for you. There is nothing in Islam that goes anywhere near here. There is nothing in any other religion of the world that even begins to approximate a solution for our dilemma, the elephant in the room. I'm a sinner who is going to stand before an angry God. Oh, the Lord Jesus Christ, praise God, that he has redeemed sinners by shedding his blood upon Calvary's cross. I receive him, I stand in him, and on that judgment day when I stand before God, I don't know if I'll utter these words exactly, but this will be the essence of it. I'm with him, the Lord Jesus. I'm with him. Oh, don't even bother opening those books because I know what's there. Don't even bother looking back. I'm with him. He is everything. The only reason I can stand here right now before you is because he has done it all. He has paid it all. Oh, my friend, is that the gospel you've been hearing? Is that the gospel you grew up with? That is the biblical gospel. If that's not the gospel you believe, guess what? You have departed from the doctrine. You're light years away from the word of God. I appeal to you, come back. I appeal to you to watch for those who teach an unbiblical view of the gospel. Oh, I have a few to go. Let me skip over one for the sake of time. Here's the fourth, which for you is number three. I appeal to you to watch for those who teach an unbiblical view of God. They're everywhere. Oh, they are everywhere. I appeal to you. To watch for those who teach an unbiblical view of God. God is there. I believe he's there. Jesus is there. I believe he is there. But you know, I don't really think God is that interested in the inner workings and the details of my life. I don't really think God demands anything of me. I think God is just sort of there And I like Jesus and I believe in Jesus and I like some of the songs and the hymns and I go to church. Everyone goes to church. We're in Texas, why not? And uh, I like the Christian radio station. I like the music. It makes me feel good. And, um, And God is there. And I have God things every day of my life. And God's just trying to make my life good. And God's just trying to make me happy. And God is there when I need him. And God will bless me how I think he should bless me. You ever heard that kind of thing? Am I making that up? You ever heard that kind of thinking? That is rampant. That is, again, my friend, I'll use the phrase again, light years from the scriptures. That has absolutely nothing to do with biblical Christianity. That is a God created in our own image. That's what it is. That's the genie in the bottle. You rub it a few times. Out he comes to grant your three wishes. Now here's the biblical God. Romans eleven thirty three. 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. And how inscrutable are his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forevermore. Amen. It's fascinating. Human history is a misnomer. It's not the history of man. It is the history of God. It is the history of what God is doing. The one who was before all things, the one who will be after all things, the one who is above all succession of time, and the one who according to his own eternal counsels has purpose to glorify himself in the salvation of sinners It is all about His glory. Everything from Him, through Him, and to Him. Uh, God is not there to serve me. God is not there whenever I think I need Him. God is not there to make me feel good when I'm down in the dumps. Uh, God is not there so I can just pray every day, bless me, bless me, bless me. Uh, God is not there sort of as some sort of life coach to help me get through. You know, God is there as the omnipotent sovereign of the universe. Who governs all things. You do not take one breath apart from the will of almighty God. Do we understand that? And this God has chosen to glorify himself rather than righteously condemn sinners. Sinners. He has chosen to glorify himself in those who are one with his son, the Lord Jesus. Oh, those who repent of their sin. Those who believe in Christ. Is that your God? Because I'll tell you, if it isn't your God, I appeal to you. I beg you to watch for those who teach an unbiblical view of God. I beg you, I plead with you to put away from your mind that little idol you've created in your own image and understand who he is, really is. Behold our God seated on his throne and understand that this world and universe is merely a stage in which he has chosen to reveal his eternal glory. And then just lastly, quickly, I appeal to you. And this is the the real crux of the text. I appeal to you to discern. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, discernment isn't a matter of simply telling the difference between what is right and wrong. It is the difference between right and almost right. How true that is in our day. It is the difference between right and almost right. Almost right is not enough. We dare not depart. From the doctrine, the word of God. Oh, here's my final admonition. The words of the Apostle Paul. Be wise. Oh, please, 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 please be wise. As to what is good. And innocent. As to what is evil. Our Heavenly Father. As your word declares you are enthroned in majesty. And the entire heavenly host worships around your throne. And we praise you because you whose ways are unsearchable, whose judgments are inscrutable, you have revealed yourself. You have not revealed yourself in some mystical inner voice. You have revealed yourself in the scriptures. You have revealed yourself in the Bible, your word. And as we have opened it and proclaimed it and heard it and considered it this day, we ask you now to bless it to our hearts and give us that understanding that we so often lack and having understood, give us that application which we so often resist. We pray that you would bend our wills into conformity with your will as reve- revealed in your word and we ask it this day for your glory and in the name of Christ we pray, amen.